If you regularly attend Great Oaks, you're probably aware by now, um, if you're not, i am be surprised, that uh, we announced, uh, or I announced, actually, a few weeks ago, back in May, that we'll be going through a transition process in leadership at Great Oaks. Um, I uh, asked the leadership team about a year ago to begin the process of thinking about transitioning because uh, my plan is to retire at some place in the near future, probably about four years from now. That's my general direction, unless God says something else. Uh, so, uh, unless Cat offers me to be a president or something. No, no, that would never happen, and I would never accept that anyway. Uh, it would be a disaster. That would be a disaster. Uh, but anyway, um, because of that, though, uh, during the, I just want to share with you that uh, the leadership team is in the process of developing some plans for uh, finding the next lead pastor, I'm going to be transitioning to a staff position uh, toward retirement and uh, continue to teach some and uh, do that as well, but basically lead the adult ministries of the church, marriage ministry in the church, some of those things. And I've already contacted this past week or a couple of weeks ago our small group leaders, our current small group leaders, to say I want to be in contact with you this next month. And also uh, gave them access to a new resource to, to review uh, to, to see about potentially something that would give us incredible amount of resources for small groups and for people in general. So uh, just let you be in prayer. But more than anything else, what I want, want to say that for is this. Because of that process, I want you to, be, to make a commitment to me and to the church and to each other that your number one prior, uh, prayer uh, over the next however long it may be uh, is going to be for the next uh, uh, key leader in the life of the church. Because it's, it's the most important decision this church has made in the last uh, 14 years. And so uh, I don't think sometimes you understand how important it is because it gives direction to, uh, and we want God to be blessed in this. And my greatest desire is to see Great Oaks just to continue to grow and to be effective here in the community. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have a transition process, not just leave and leave you high and dry. And uh, so uh, be in prayer for that as well, okay? Well, today, guys, we're, we're in Daniel, the book of Daniel, and today we're in one of my two favorite stories in the book of Daniel. And I really hated it because I looked at the schedule, and at the end of this month, the last, there's five Sundays in the month of, of, uh, of July, and the last Sunday I'm going to be in Fort Wayne for our denominational convention, and so Nate is going to get to share with you the other favorite story that I have in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6. But today we're in Jan Daniel chapter 3, uh, a story that every kid that grew up in Sunday school knows, a uh, story that everybody, even if you, uh, if you ever watch, uh, you know, any kids programming, VeggieTales, whatever it is, you'll, you'll know the story. So I probably, for most of you, I won't be telling you anything new today. I just want to kind of bring, kind of share the story with you and then also bring it, put it in the context of, it's not just about a kid's story. It's, it's a story that, that teaches us so much about, about God, our God. And, and, and as I shared with you four weeks ago when we began, this is the fourth week of the series, four weeks ago when I began to share this uh, about the series and about Daniel. Daniel is a book more than anything else about one thing, and that is this. God is in control in spite of what everything else looks like. Okay, God is in control. And so we see that again today. And, and the first week we talked about Daniel chapter one, which is basically uh, Daniel and his friends were taken into captivity. They, they outshone everybody else. They, got, they used the wisdom that God had given them to, uh, to not uh, go against uh, what their beliefs were. 
Then the last two weeks, we've been in Daniel chapter 2, talking about the, uh, this uh, crazy king named Nebuchadnezzar who had this dream, and he couldn't figure out what the dream was, and so he went, and, he, and, and, and last week we talked about the dream itself, and two weeks ago we talked about the leading up to the dream, and the dream was weird, but it was also weirder than what Nebuchadnezzar wanted the, the wise men to do, and that was not only to interpret the dream, but to tell them what the dream was. And, and so we had this kind of like irrational king Nebuchadnezzar, we'll just call him Nebi for short, and uh, Nebi was, you know, he was going through all this, this process in his life, trying to figure out this stuff, and, and, and God gave this, this, this pagan king a vision of the future in his dream, and then God used Daniel, the, the kind of the hero, one of the heroes of the book of Daniel, to kind of, in a real sense, interpret that in the context and help him to know that. Well, we kind of finished chapter two with, with that last week. But sometimes when we read scripture, we don't really get that there's a space between chapters. We kind of think like, well, chapter two ends and then it's the next day. Okay. Well, let me explain something to you. It'll help set us in a little bit of better context because last week when we left, left Daniel, he had, God, had, uh, God had used Daniel to interpret the dream and Nebuchadnezzar had fallen on his face before, before ne- Daniel and before God and was worshiping God. And we all going like, well, did he become a Christian at that point? Probably not, because we'll see him here in Daniel chapter 3. Now, in the, in the um, Septuagint, which is the oldest Greek version of the Old Testament, you don't have to know that, but that's where I get this from, uh, the account of this passage in chapter 3, there seems to be in there uh, evidence that there's probably somewhere between 16 and 20 years between chapter 2 and chapter 3, okay? It wasn't the next day. It was a long period of time. So it gives time for, De- uh, for Nebuchadnezzar to slip back into his old ways. It wasn't an overnight transformation. So he's not quite as whacked out as we think he is, even though he is in a lot of ways. And so Nebuchadnezzar had uh, plenty of time to rethink his impulsive commitment to the Lord and revive his own egomania that he had uh, before. Now, verse 1, we're going to look at just different verses in here. I'm not going to read the whole chapter today. I'm going to kind of tell you about some of it. I'll put some verses on the screen and I'll tell you what it says without already reading it. And you can read it. So it's going to be a little different today because this is a story we, most of us probably know in some ways. Verse 1 of chapter, Daniel chapter 3 says this though, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold and it was 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and he set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. The same king who had saw in a dream this vision of a, of a statue and, and on the, the head was made of gold, I guess decided, you know, 16 to 20 years later, well, if the head's going to be made of gold and I'm supposed to represent the head, why don't I just make the whole thing out of gold? Because it's all about me. And so he makes this ridiculous, this ridiculous, uh, he gets his, his masons, his designers, his design team together, his creative team, whatever it was, and he gets them together and he designs this crazy statue, and, and it, was, it says it was 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. In, in our language, that means it was 90 feet tall, and it was about, you know, like, you know, 9 or, nine or 10 feet wide, it's close, okay. And so the ratio of height to this was a really tall skinny statue of a person it was 10 to 1 ratio now let me explain something to you unless you're anorexic you do not have that same ratio the average person in america today and i may this may not be true anymore uh, the average person's ratio for an average person is five to one five times height one time width okay so you can imagine this is 10 to 1 you know this is a skinny tall dude made out of gold 
but he's 90 feet tall in the desert and encased with gold. Probably not solid gold because the, the amount of solid gold it would take to do that would be like the whole world's gold supply, basically. I don't know if it's that much, but it's a lot. But the reality is it's probably a wooden statue that was covered in gold. And he puts it out in the desert. And then he tells in, in the story in the first few verses, he says, he says, he says, hey, what I want to do is I want, want you to place it out there because what I want to do is I want to have a place where everybody can come together and worship me. Because I want to draw us all together. You, you don't ever see this anywhere else in the world, right? I mean, where leaders want their followers to worship them, and I use religion as a, as a tool. I mean, we see it all the time, all over the world. So it's, it's, not, it's nothing new under the sun, and this is true here. And then he says, what I want to do is once the statue's out there, the statue gets finished, everybody sees it out there in the plain, in the, in the plain of Dura, and, 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 and he says, I want everybody, and he gives this really crazy list, and they're kind of like all the same. He said he summoned the, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. He must have had as much of a convoluted uh, uh, government as we do, you know, where you have thousands and thousands of people who work for tons and tons of offices. And he said, everybody has to come out here to this plane because we're going to have a unveiling of the statue. Now, I don't have any large tarp over it or what the deal was, but he came out there and he said, this is what's going to happen. And then he tells about, he said, I have this band. It's a very special band. And it was the most dysfunctional band. I, you know, it's, I've said before, and I, I love, I love kid, middle school kids, okay? I really do. But have you ever been to a middle school, like, sixth and seventh grade band concert? They're not great. I mean, some of them just learned to play, like, two weeks before, you know, or something like that, you know. And it's kind of like, you know, kind of a song, but it's not a great song, and it's all right. But this is kind of weird. And he goes together, and if you read this, I'm not going to read it. He, he has all these different instruments, instruments that do not go together, you know. And it was, it was probably, I mean, it was kind of crazy stuff to go together. And he had this whole band. I don't know who decided what the band was going to be like, you know, or you know, whatever. But it wasn't a, a, a musician. It was somebody weird. And so what happens is he sends them out to the desert. He says, I want you to come out here because I want you to, want you to come out here and to be together to show me your dedication to me. And now what's going to happen is, is when this band plays whatever song it is they're going to play, what I want you to all do together is I want you to fall on your face, on your knees, to the ground, and worship the statue, which represents me. And so that's what the, the story's all about. And so we see this mass of humanity gathered on the plain of Dura, shading their eyes from the reflection of this, this I can't imagine, and this is kind of a desert area, and the shading their eyes from this reflection off this glowing statue, and, and, uh, and then the band plays, and the crowd hits the dust, all except three. Now, we don't know where Daniel's at in this story, because Daniel doesn't show up in this story. He might have been out somewhere. This is 15, 16 years later, 20 years later. He may have been somewhere else on a job for the king, somewhere else. But everybody was there. And, and three of the guys that were there was the three friends we encountered in chapter 1 of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were here, and they had been placed as provincial governors as well, or provincial leaders as well. And they were among the crowd. Everybody else hits the ground except for three, these three guys. And it must have been a large crowd because for some reason at this point, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't notice that three guys are still... I mean, would you notice if everybody else was on the ground and there's three guys still standing there? I mean, if you're, if you're near them, yeah. You know, you're kind of like, what's going on? 
so that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't miss anything, some of his, uh, some of his astrologers, who, who were just great folks, they come to, come to Nebuchadnezzar to remind him that he had ordered every, everybody to bow down as if he couldn't see or something like that, and he hadn't, didn't remember what he had just said. And when they do that, he says, uh, he, he, they point out that there's these three Jewish guys that are still standing. And Nebuchadnezzar was furious. And so he commanded the three Hebrews to be brought before him, and he repeated his order. He said, now when you hear the orchestra play, I'll give you one more chance. When you hear the, play, hear the orchestra play, I'm going to give you one chance. Now when it doesn't, you just bow down and you'll be all right. Maybe you didn't hear it right the first time. Maybe it's not obvious, even though everybody else gets it. You know? And so the orchestra members, you know, poise their instruments, ready for this baton to come down. But these three guys, and we've already learned this in chapters 1 and 2, but these three guys followed God's rules, not, not Nebuchadnezzar's rules. And, and they remembered clearly the teaching that God had said in Exodus about the Ten Commandments. And, and, and one of the commandments is this, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven or above, uh, on heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. And so they remembered that and they knew that this was not the thing they were to do and they realized this was, this was the choice, the choice between the king's command and God's word. But the king was willing to give these guys another chance if they were to reconsider. And then the king kind of gets sarcastic, if you look at the verses there. After, after they, they kind of talk to him, and he says, and the king says, you got to do this because what God will be able to rescue you? I mean, his, his attitude, he'd forgotten what God had done 15 to 20 years earlier. Or he's ignored what God had done 15 to 20 years earlier. When God had given him a vision of the world, and he had, and he had worshipped at the feet of Daniel... He'd forgotten all of that. That God had created Nebuchadnezzar, protected him, clothed and fed him all these years, and honored him with, the, with rulership uh, in the first world empire. And he had forgotten that God in those, in those few years, uh, what God was going to do, or what he had done. Now, I can say this. There will always be warfare between the powers of darkness and the powers of light. And there will always be pagan rulers who cry out in sarcasm, who is that God? But what we see here, and this is where we're going to start reading Scripture today, verse 16 is probably one of the greatest statements of faith in all of Scripture. That's what's so cool about this. It's not about the kid's story we're going to look at in a minute, okay? It's about the statement of faith and what comes next. Because when we read this, this is what God wants, the kind of faith that God wants us to have in Him. And faith is just trusting in Him, trusting in Him that no matter what, that's what the sermon, the sermon title is, no matter what, no matter what, God is there for us. So let's begin to read in verse 16. And we're going to read some of the rest of the verses in chapter, and I'll talk about these as well. It says this, okay, after all this happens, and Nebuchadnezzar tells to him, hey, you guys bow down, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all three replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we were thrown into the blazing furnace, because he had said, if anybody doesn't do it, we're going to take, throw you into a furnace. Now, we don't know what the furnace looked like. It must have been this gigantic thing big enough to throw people into. And it must have been kind of a big open top because they would throw them into it kind of deal. They didn't shove them in the door. It says throw them into it. It says, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve, now listen to this, is able to deliver us from it. 
The first thing they say is this. Our God, we believe our God is a big God. And yeah, and you said that no God, can, who could, what God could deliver us from this? Our God can deliver us from this. He is able to do this. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. At this point, they didn't know what God was going to do. But then I love the next last part of the verse, because this is the key, folks. So often we think, well, I can follow God when things are growing, going great. I mean, let me tell you something, folks. We've, we've seen a miracle in this community in the last week, the last few weeks. I don't know if you know about, most of you know about the kid Seth DeLuca, okay? DeLuca, right? Last, last, word, last name. I don't know him personally, but I know, I know he lives in the community. He was actually dead. Had to be. You don't go underwater in a lake up here at White Oak Lake for 15, 20 minutes and come out alive. He came home from the hospital yesterday. We can praise God when that happens, okay? Right? But what if it hadn't happened? The reality is that God is still God. Even because sometimes that happens and we can get excited. And I'm glad, man, I am so pumped because we see God working in some ways that we can't imagine. But only God could have done that. We had some folks in the church that work with the rescue squad that were saying, hey, man, they were there. They're going like there's no way. But they've also been places there in similar situations when that no way was no way. And the reality is, is what these guys say is next. He says, well, you know, God can rescue you from the fiery furnace from the lake. He can do whatever. But, this is the clique, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, they're still respectful, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Hey, we believe our God can do it, can rescue us from the fiery furnace. But if it if he don't, if we jump in the furnace and we get thrown in the furnace and we burn up, we're still not going to say it because we believe, God, that you are the God who's in control and whatever happens after that is going to be all right. That's the faith that God wants us to have. And so they had this word from God, and that's all they needed. The path of duty was plain. They didn't have to think about it. They didn't have to have a committee meeting about it. See, that's what the world is crying out for. For men, women, boys, and girls who have a conviction of heart and who do not change their convictions on the basis of their circumstances. These three men knew that God, what God wanted them to do, and they weren't afraid of the consequences. So what is the, how does Nebuchadnezzar respond? This normal, just, just calm king. Uh, well, he, he responds the way he always responds in the next verse, verses 19 and 20. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We don't expect anything different, right? And his attitude toward them changed because he'd kind of given them a, said, here's an out. You just, hey, you didn't bow down the first time. Now you bow down. And if you bow down this time, I will kind of forgive you for that first faux pas, Okay. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. Now, how do you know that? I mean, I guess that's an estimate. You know, I don't know. If you have an engineer, some of you engineers can probably figure this out or something. You know, whatever. How do you do that? It was, it was a lot. He said, I want it hotter than it's ever been before. And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers, not just regular soldiers, but the strong, the buff dudes, the guys that look like, you know, uh, you know NFL linemen, you know. He said, I want those guys to grab these guys and to tie them up 
to tie, tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. I, all I can say is this. On that day, it was not good to be a strong guy. Because what we go here, here next. And so what they did, they, they tied them up. And, you know, here's King Neb is an interesting study. He was a man of extremes. The biggest statue, gold, a huge band. He could put on a real show. But when he pronounced judgments even, he didn't do little judgments. He did like, uh, you know, the furnace hotter than ever. Get the biggest guys. Turn up the heat. Then he picked the strongest guys and they tied them up. Verses 21 through 23. So these men, these men are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, wearing their robes, their trousers, their turbans, and their other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. This is where it gets bad for the guys that are soldiers. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. I mean, it was, I don't know what this furnace looked like. I, I can't even imagine it. Uh, some open thing, must have been flames jumping out of the thing because it was so hot. At that moment, these guys just like turned into crispy critters. But Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, thrown into the furnace, into the midst of the flames. The next verse is like, what? So then King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 24, leaped to his feet in amazement, and he asked his advisors. I mean, first of all, he said, weren't there three guys you flew in a furnace? And they're not burned up yet. He didn't say that, but he's thinking that. He says, certainly, your majesty. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like the, a son of the gods. <laughs> now, I wonder about this, because remember, this furnace was so hot that it, nobody get close to it because they burned up. So I don't know how Nebuchadnezzar looked into it. I'm trying to figure that one out. If you guys know that, did they have a plexiglass a porthole here, you know, to look into it or something? I don't know how he did that, you know. But Scripture tells us he looked, maybe he got up, on a, had a kind of a, you know, he had an observation tower to look down into. I don't know what the deal is. But he said he looked down into it. There's a lot of unanswered questions in this. He looked down into it and he saw these guys. But he saw not only three guys in there still walking around after his guards had just been toasted. But he saw a fourth guy walking around with him. He looked different. He couldn't figure out what it was. It says, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace. I'm sure he approached it with apprehension. And probably he was sweating a lot, okay? He wasn't perspiring. He was sweating. And, and, and he shouted. And he shouts, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most. Think how paranoid this guy is. One minute he's saying, I'm God, worship me. The next minute he's going back. He turns back around because of what happens. He said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out of the fire, and all these guys, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched. And there was no smell of fire on them. That's pretty amazing. I don't know about you guys. I get close to a fire. You smell, you smell it for, you know, you know somebody's been at a campfire. But this wasn't a campfire. This was like a blazing thing. See, the three guys walked out of the furnace, and they probably stepped over the charred remains of the guards to come out because they had to get some way. And they came out, and they, they stood before their accusers, and they were calm, and they were well-groomed, and they looked like they were normal in every way, and their clothes and their hair were untouched, and they didn't even smell smoke. And then Nebuchadnezzar, we conclude uh, 
we come toward the end of this. And it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel. And he calls him an angel. I don't know if it's an angel. We don't know. There's all kind of commentators that think it may have been Jesus Christ himself walking around. I read so many commentaries and nobody agrees on how that is. But it's the presence of God in some way. He was sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him and defied the king's command. He's kind of talking in third person about himself. And were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation... Okay, once again, this guy can flop in about two seconds. Okay, a while ago he's saying, okay, I'm the king. Here's the statue. It represents me. Worship me. Now he's saying, okay... This is amazing. This is so cool. I can't believe it happened. I should have remembered how this God works, you know, 20 years ago. But it didn't. He said, he says to him, he said, Therefore I decree that in the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, will, that will be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubber, rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Think about this. I mean, this guy, how many times in this verse does he flip? I mean, this one little chapter is he flip flop back and forth. This is a schizophrenic guy. But he, the, sadly, he's in control. At least he thinks he's in control. He's in control of certain things, but he's not controlling the big picture because God proves he's in control. See, King Neb, true to his impulsive and erratic nature, said, Praise be to God. And with customary harshness, what does he do? He orders that anybody who says anything against this God now be cut into pieces and the house be burned. Just as he had done with Daniel, he sent the these, this trio from the firing line to the front line. He, he gives them a promotion after this. We're not going to read about that. Now, what does this mean for us? Let me wrap this up in five minutes, okay? What does this mean about it for us? We're going like, okay, I don't really relate to the whole story of walking. You know, we don't have too many fiery furnaces nowadays. We don't have that kind of stuff going on. So what does it mean? This is really a story about, modern, about idolatry. I mean, the Bible, it's a story about then, but it's also a story about now. It's, it's, it's a, at first, it, it's difficult for us as Christians living today to identify with the challenge facing the Jewish people on the plain of Dura. But the issue that transcends the worship of a particular, it's not about worshiping statues. Instead, it's about being, who is going to be in control of your life? Who is going to be your idol? Because we all worship idols. We just have to choose which one is the right one. Because God has said, he says himself, he says, you know, you shall worship no other gods. We all worship a God. Which God is it going to be? And we have to choose. And, and idolatry is a big deal to God because he puts do not worship other gods in his top ten. It's not on Saturday night. It's, it's the top ten of God in Exodus. And John Calvin, uh, one of the theologians years ago, said this. He said, he, he, he said this. He said, the human mind is a factory of idols. I don't like to hear that because I think it's true. He says, we are constantly, even as Christians, in a struggle with this temptation of what we place in the priority of our life. Paul Tillich, who's another theologian, said it this way. He calls it our ultimate concern. He said, if you want to know what your idol is, it's your ultimate concern. A person's God is the thing or person that one is most concerned about, thinks the most about, or affects one's life the most. So if you want to know what your idol is, 
what your God is, your little G God is, and hopefully it's the big G God, you just need to look at what you sit, sit around and worry about all the time. What do you focus your attention on? You know, the temptation can come from a variety of resources or sources in our life, not all of them, which are bad on the surface. I mean, so often our focus is on pleasure. Pleasure can become an idol when all we think about is the next weekend or the next vacation or the next trip. That can become our focus. That can become our idol. I told, so many people live for the weekend, whatever that means. For me, it means work. I don't live for the weekend, okay? Some people live and seek power in, in order to control the world around them or simply to have resources that we believe we have to have to live life to the level that we think we have to live it at. And so power becomes our God, our little G God. And I've seen that happening, and people try to amass power and influence in society and family, even in church. Some people make relationships into their God, their little G God, their idol. They focus so much on a, on a, on a, a relationship or relationships that that becomes the total focus of their life. And when that happens, I don't care who it is. That's why Jesus said at one time, he said, whoever loves me, cannot continue to he said you got to leave your family your everything he's not saying you got to leave it he's saying you can't worship that because that can become your god your idol some people it's seeking knowledge it's about the next thing i'll learn or getting another degree because we think for some reason the smarter i get the, the better I'll get. And I just hate to tell you folks, I, I mean, I've got a master's degree, okay? Big deal. Because the reality is that doesn't make me a person who is more godly. The seduction is su subtle, which we can slip so easily into idol worship through it's subtle and varied. And I suggest the idolatry, whether of Nebuchadnezzar's sword or the, the, the pot kind that we discover in our own hearts, ultimately only has one object. And that's what the story's about. When the mask are ripped away, every, behind every idol is self. Now, I don't know how many of you studied philosophy in school. I did. Philosophy's weird. It can challenge your thinking, but it can also make you messed up. And one of the most messed up, but probably the most influential philosophers of the late 18th century was a guy named Frederick Nietzsche. That's how you pronounce his name. I looked it up. Nietzsche. Not Nietzsche. Nietzsche. He, most of us don't know this, unless you studied this, but he probably had more influence on the culture than almost any philosopher in history. And basically he said this, and, and this, is kinda, this is how extreme he was. He said... He said, what we have to do, he, he was the one that said that God is dead. Had some movies recently about that. God is dead. And he recently said God is dead because he couldn't believe in a God because what he said he couldn't believe in is a person who controlled his life. And so he said, what I want to do is I want to kill God so that myself can become God. That's kind of a simplification of Nietzsche's, or Nietzsche's um, uh, idea. He talked that God is dead. He said the self must replace it. 
Now, when we hear that, we think, okay, we think, this is where you're going to have to think for a minute, okay? We think this sounds to be the opposite of what Daniel 3 is all about. But it's not. It is not about, Nietzsche's philosophy is not about so much, ultimately when you read all of it, not so much about ridding the world of God, but a, a replacing of God by another God, self. I'm the most important. I mean, we see this in this story. I mean, it starts off with, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar would have, would have bought right in to Nietzsche's philosophy. And then he kind of bought out of it, then he bought back in, then he bought back. And we'll see this throughout Scripture. He was schizophrenic. He, he does that. And we think, we're not that weird. But the thing is, is we have to ask ourselves, what is it that is our God? See, here's the heart of today's society. In the absence of the gods, gods that we may uh, or must create a, we, we, to find meaning, no longer does Christ provide meaning for us if we don't focus upon him. And all substitutes for God are ultimately this idol, the idol of self. It's all about me. And as Christians, we, the Bible, this story is about this. We may not bow down to this idol in any of its manifestations. Because if we do in any of its manifestations, if we look for power, if we look for, uh, uh, for, for uh, resources, if we look for any of these things, relationships, and they take the place of the, high, the highest place in our life of God, it becomes our God. And the Bible tells us, and actually Paul says that how we can know God, he says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He says that in Colossians 115. He calls him Jesus, the image of the invisible God. He says, if you want to worship an image, worship that image. Jesus, the image of the invisible God. Now, these guys in the story in Daniel didn't know about Jesus, but they knew about God. And so what they did is they made it a choice, and their choice was this. He said, I'm going to trust God, that God, above anything man-made, because anything man-made is going to fail. And over and over and over again, what happens is, is we allow stuff in our life to push us away from God. I mean, it's kind of like this. We let tough times hinder who we worship as our God. I, I like it when I was reading one of the commentaries, and I'm going to finish with this. John Calvin, once again, said this. He said, he pointed out that if God wanted to, in this story... If God had wanted to, he could have extinguished the flames of the fire in order to save the three men. Could he have done that? I mean, God can put out anything. He could do anything, right? He could have, just, he could have thought a thought and the fire would have been gone. That's, that's one way he could have done it. But he didn't do it that way. He saved them in the fire, not from the fire. That's a big deal when you think of it. They were in the very jaws of death. Moreover, he could have saved them without further fanfare. He could have had them simply to walk out of the flames unscathed, but instead he chose to save them by the presence of a fourth image. And like I said, many people, many commentators, if you read them, will think that this fourth image is Jesus Christ himself before Jesus Christ, the part of the Trinity. Now, I can't say that's true because it's, there's not enough evidence there for that, but it's safer to say that what we have here in this fourth person in the fire is, is a reflection of what we call Emmanuel, God with us, whatever it looks like. And so God dwelt with the three friends 
in the midst of the fire, in the midst of the flames, to preserve them from harm. And in this sense, we can see in a sense here in this story the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us through Jesus Christ. He came to earth to dwell in a chaotic world, and even he experienced death himself. So that we may not escape the experience of death, but we might have victory over it and live life in a different way. So this is the final question. One other slide and we're done. This is what I want to leave with. Who is on the throne of your life? Bill Bright said, asked that question years ago. I mean, he, he's kind of the same thing that Paul Tillich said, except much simpler. <laughs> Who is on the throne of your life? What little g-god do you worship? And if you want to know who it is and what it is, what is your greatest concern? What do you focus most of your attention on? And if it's not God, there needs to be some repentance. And there needs to be some changes. Because God, this story is about worshiping the one true God. Who will lead you not just simply keep you safe from the fires, but will lead you through the fires. Through the flames of life, through the difficulties of life. That's the kind of God we see in the Old Testament. That's the kind of God we see in the New Testament, even revealed greater. Who's on the throne of your life? Ask yourself that question this week. And be honest. If with nobody else, be honest with yourself. Because that's where God wants us to be. Because that's the beginning of turning things around. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your incredible love and your goodness to us. We pray that you would enable us this morning, God, more than anything else, to understand that this story in Scripture is, is a story not just about three guys that walked into flames and we learned in Sunday school and, as kids and and it was a, you know, it's a great story, whatever. It's not just about them escaping from the flames, but being willing to say whatever it takes, what, whatever, whatever the, the circumstances will be, I'm going to follow you. Because that's what the guy said. Even if you don't, God, take us out of the flames, we believe that you're going to be there with us through it, and that ultimately our lives, whatever that may be, is going to be best when we trust in you through the ups and the downs of life. Thank you, God, for Old Testament stories like this that have relevance and meaning and purpose for today. And guide us now, God, as we go our separate ways this day, as we sing a song, as we go out, but as we go our separate ways, then we'll ask ourselves this question this week. Who have we placed upon the throne of our life? What have we placed upon the throne of our life? And what is our greatest concern? And if it's not you, God, it's not living for you every day, then we have to repent of that sin and, and then you've got to turn back to you and begin to refocus our attention upon you, God, and what do you have, want us to do with our lives? Because God, ultimately, that's the only way to live life victoriously in a broken and chaotic world. So guide us now, God, this day. Help us to praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing them together.